good evening, and and welcome to Cinema Delft Cult. I am your host, Adam Bolger, and tonight we are discussing a movie called On the Silver Globe. It was made in Poland, and it was a science fiction film, but before they could finish making it, the government told them they had to stop. Years later, the director finished making it anyway, and now everybody wants to go see it, so you should too. Yep, terrific. Great work, Hey, good evening. Uh, thanks to my guest host, uh, Agatha, for, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, the only thing I really want to add at this point... Um, is that, yeah, we're talking about On the Silver Globe. It's a Polish science fiction film. It was shot in multiple locations in the Soviet bloc, the 1970s. It was funded uh, by the communist Polish government, uh, who got cold feet uh, about 70% through shooting, either because of bo- uh, budget issues or ideological ones, perhaps both. And then um, uh, the director, uh, Andrzej Zhirovsky, uh, years later, edited the film together, uh, inserting um, scenes of narration describing the parts of the movie that went unfilmed. And um, the, it was, even after it was completed, it was kind of, from the impression I get is that it was difficult to come by for years, but there's a big um, high profile restoration in 2016, uh, sadly, the same year that uh, Andrzej Zhirovsky died. Um, but its reputation has only grown uh, since then. There, and this year, there was a new making of documentary about it called Escape to the Silver Glow that was released in Europe and I don't think is yet available in America. But hey, I'll keep you posted. And Vice Magazine called On the Silver Glow the greatest science fiction film never made, um, which I think kind of sells the movie a little short because the final result, while not the film Zhirovsky uh, intended, is a visually striking and elusive work of art it's truly a one-of-a-kind movie and if you love cinema you got to see it um it defies not just categoriz- categorization but description uh the eastern Euro- the east european film scholar daniel bird joins me to explore on the silver globe and um i honestly didn't know uh i kind of didn't know who he was when i reached out to him and if I did, I would have been too intimidated to reach out to him because he is he's not only an expert in all things Zhirovsky and Polish film and East European film, but he knew Zhirovsky uh, uh, and collaborated with him on um, several restorations and documentaries uh, and so forth. And I just want to bring that up uh, because um, when I introduce Daniel later, uh, I neglect to mention his his close his close relationship with. Uh, well, his relationship with Jarofsky. He's a. <laughs> I feel like Daniel would probably say like, "No, we're not. We were that close, but, but you know, uh, is that seems like he, he's you know, uh, that's my impression of him. <laughs> so my impression of Daniel. He likes things to be very correct, um, which is great. Uh, it makes for a great conversation, and I love speaking with him. Um, uh, and I invited him back to talk about Possession, another Jarofsky film, and. Um, well, without any further ado, uh, here's the interview. It's really terrific. Uh, I think you're going to love it. Bye. There's one hero came outside. 
Yeah. Great. All right, so I'm going to start up now. All right, so uh, Daniel Bird uh, is the co-founder of the post-production and production company Acid Pictures, through which he has co-produced restorations of Jane Campion's Peel, Stephen Sayadian's Dr. Caligari, and Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. He directs the Hamo Bez Nazarov project, through which he has produced Temple of Cinema, an installation featuring outtakes from Sergei Parajanov's The Color of Pomegranates, Parajanov Triptych, a program of, rest- of restored shorts from Armenia, Ukraine, and Georgia, and a restoration of Maria Sekian's uh, Mayak. Uh, he's also the co-founder of Friends of Walerian uh, Barajik, which recently worked with Mubi to distribute a restoration of Brief von Paris. And I'm pleased to welcome here uh, today. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. It's a, oh, it's a privilege and an honor. Thank you. A privilege and an honor is all mine, I assure you. But uh, so I'm a recent convert to uh, Zhirovsky, uh And so I, 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 I saw Possession, I saw On the Silver Globe, both the first time like a month ago. And I found his approach to film to be both kind of uh, singular and startling and uh just it, just to start really broadly, like how would you describe the way he approaches film? How would I describe his approach to film? Well, I would say first and foremost, um, it is uh, dynamic, visceral, and above all else, emotional. Yeah, I think uh, there is a. Um, I think if you go back through history, uh, you can think, you can clearly discern two types of people, uh, people who are intellectuals, people who place great emphasis, um, um, uh, emphasis on theory and ideas and things like that and rationality, people who are urbane, you know, in the city and, and I guess in these days active on social media. And people who are very much attuned to taste, you know, what's fashionable, what's on point, what's problematic. And then there's another type of person, another character who is um, the complete opposite, somebody who um, is wild, uh, somebody who places great emphasis on emotion and who believes that their experience is their source of understanding the world and ultimately somebody who is um, really, uh, you don't necessarily acquire skills and understanding. You're born. You're either born a genius or not at all. And I think Jaworski is very much this, this latter type of person, somebody who is wild, someone who, is, uh, who believes themselves. And I think there's good proof to say that um, to some extent that he was a genius, and uh, and who above all else, and I think this is the defining aspect of his cinema, believed in the importance of emotion. That cinema is a emotional experience. It doesn't matter whether it's um, a comedy or a horror film or even pornography. It, it, it's, it's a kind of a, a physical, guttural, basic response. It's not yeah. some sort of... Uh, uh, you know, intellectual discussion in a, over a coffee table. Uh, even though yeah. those things happen in his films, they always end up in fistfights. So, <laughs> you know. so when you say it's that he's trying to make um, 
cinema that's about emotion? Is it about trying to inspire an emotion in the viewer or trying to capture an emotion uh, within the performance and the, the film itself, or, or perhaps both? That, that's, I think that's, that's a very um, interesting and, uh, and deep question. I, I think that ultimately um, it's about catching what it is to be human. Yeah. And I think part of being human is experiencing and expressing emotions. And uh, I think one of the things he's particularly good at is that one of the ways we express ourselves is through language. Uh, but there comes a point when language isn't enough. And yeah. you resort on physical characteristics, uh, emphatics, stress, yelling, gesture, and, uh, and, and gesticulation, or, or, yeah. or just physically assaulting someone, or, 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 or fucking them, or, or anything. It's just that basically, once you go beyond the, 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 the textual limitations of the screenplay, you go yeah. into cinema. And I think that's, that's fundamentally, I would say that Jaworski really had a dual career in that when he was in his early 20s, I think he was oscillating between, should I be a writer or should I be a filmmaker? And in fact, throughout his career, he did both. Yeah. But I think that there is a, a genre distinction. And the genre distinction is, is this a novel or is this a film? Yeah. And I think that it's interesting. What can you do in film, which you can't do in a novel? And what can you do in a novel, which you can't do in film? And I think that in his films, he's doing things which, um, you know, if you're writing a play, you can only say he or she screams. Yeah, the yeah, question yeah. for the director is how do they scream? Right. You know, or, or he or she walks along the street. The question for the director is how do they walk along the street? Yeah. And I think that is the defining characteristic of Shawowski. Yeah. Uh, he or usually she walks briskly and the camera is down low <laughs> with a wide lens and you can see the, the streets and the, the smoke and the, the yeah. details, the crumbling. And, and, and that's, that's really pure cinema. It's, yeah. it's dynamic and emotional. And, and I think that for whatever his failings as a director and as a person uh, are and were, I think the one thing which I think is uh, beyond uh, question is that even the least of his films are profoundly cinematic. Yeah. And I think that's why they're worth watching. Even if you hate them, they're worth watching <laughs> because it's, this is what cinema is in my mind. Yeah. yeah. And he, his approach to actors, like the way that people perform in his films, which I think is something you've already kind of touched on. Like the performances well, he's able to get out of people are just, you, you're not going to see him in any other films. Like, you know, uh, obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously. Possession is an English language film. So as an English language native speaker, I'm able to like discern the meaning and everything. Uh, and, and the performance is, you know, easier for me to kind of read than that. But you watch on the Silver Globe, and there's some, some kind of ecstatic outpouring, this broad, uh, not natural, not it might be off-putting for some people if they're looking for like natural performances, but it's so expressive. And I was thinking of you know like uh, Warner Herzog. He talks about like the ecstatic truth that you're trying to. He's trying to pursue in his films. Uh, uh, I, I find that applies to Jarofsky, at least in the films I've seen. Do you agree? 
I, I couldn't agree more. I think you hit on two points which absolutely nail um, what his approach to performance is about. The first thing you mentioned is that it's not natural. Yeah. And I think that's completely true. I think one of the barriers people have in cinema and also towards Schwabsky's cinema is naturalism, by which I mean you're confronted with something which doesn't seem like how people react in real life. It seems too much. I personally would disagree. Uh, I've seen lots of people behave like the characters in Zawabski's films. But perhaps we as people don't want to admit we are out of control, that we're behaving in such a way in which we're not fully in control of our emotions or bodies. Uh, And that's disturbing for us. So he embraces the theatricality. And I think one important aspect of his cinema is that um, it owes a lot to theatre and the idea specifically of performance. And performance is something which is in some ways related to religion. And so if you go back to, say, for example, um, the very, very first religion, uh, the kind of a shamanistic situation with a medicine man or woman, uh, yeah. uh, sort of uh, presenting themselves as straddling both the spiritual realm and the physical realm for the um, not necessarily the interpen- entertainment, but the healing of the community in which they're in. Yeah, that's really what Zhuwevsky is channeling and what's in the film. And I think if you look at all the characters in his films, and 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 Isabella Gianni in Possession is a great example. She is in some way a shamanistic character in the way that she's straddling two realms, a metaphysical world and a physical world. And she is the gateway. She brings something fantastical from this kind of Lovecraftian other dimension into (laughs) a subway in in West Berlin in the the, uh, early 1980s. So I think that's what he's doing. And the other point you mentioned about Werner Herzog, I think that's a, a really important point you made because... One of the things which used to drive Shawevsky absolutely crazy was when people would describe his films as hysterical. <laughs> it used to really, really upset him. And, and in yeah. fact, he was invited to, to, to New York and Los Angeles about 10 years ago. And I think there were lots of reasons why he didn't go. Uh, but one of the reasons, the official reason, and I'm not saying that this is the real reason, uh, I, I don't know the real reason, but I, I'm just—I know that the the wording he gave in the facts, or yeah, because yeah, he was still using facts at the time, was that he didn't like the uh, hysterical excess or whatever title <laughs> they used in your. And and I think that um, there is a counterpoint, uh, an alternative way of looking at what we could describe as hysterical, and that's the word that you use in conjunction with Werner Herzog, that is ecstasy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think they're two related concepts, but I think that hysteria has negative connotations and ecstasy has positive connotations. And I think that while you could look in Schwabsky's filmography and find examples of lots of hysterical women, you can also find lots of examples of lots of ecstatic women. Yeah. And uh, so... That, what does the word ecstasy mean? It means out of body. So, you know, I think that um, using the actor and using cinema as a vehicle to 
get out of one's head, whether you're an actor or whether you're an audience member, is really what that cinema is about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we've talked a lot about the the performances by the actors, um, but he also has, he seems to have a, a singular visual style that I've I've never seen anywhere else. And um, I'm sorry, I you you were kind enough to send me along like a behind the scenes um, video uh, film that you directed about on the silver moon. It was um, we interviewed. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of it. The short documentary you sent over yesterday. Which one? The um, one about uh, where you interviewed the cinematographer from on the silver moon and the, the one, the one in the salt mines or the uh, the archival one. The archival one. Well, I, did, I, I didn't direct the archival one. No, oh, I'm that, sorry. Was, uh, my yeah. mistake. Oh, okay. But but any any event. Uh, so what was, the name of his, what was the name of the cinematographer? Uh, his, his cinematographer uh, is a brilliant cinematographer called Andrzej Yaroshevich. Yeah. And, and he had this wonderful and, quote about you. I'm sorry, to, but just don't want to no, drive please. this thing. Uh, he had this great quote about filming for Jaworski, where he was like talking about using this wide angle lens uh, and about how everything in everything you see becomes important. And so it's very difficult. He was talking about it in terms of like, you know, doing this, it's very difficult. But I was like, that really kind of unlocks a lot of stuff for me about watching the Jarofsky films. It's like everything you see has a sort of importance, whether it's a little thing in the background or something in uh, small, the actors doing. I, I think that's, that's, uh... Uh, I, I would partially agree with you on that point. Okay. The, 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 the thing which I would slightly disagree with you about is the fact that the style is not singular. Okay. And the Silver Globe is a very, very good example of why it's not singular, because in fact, the film is in three parts yeah, based yeah, on yeah. three books. And each of those three parts has a distinctive visual style. They all have okay. their own unique style. And something which both Zhivovsky and Yaroshevich talked and talk about quite often is that as a cinematographer, you should never impose your style on the filmmaker. Yeah. Rather, you should read the script and ask yourself, what style do I need to serve the story? Yes. So in the case of On the Silver Globe, the first part, the first book, uh, it's based on a trilogy of books and the first book is a bit like Bram Stoker's Dracula in the way that it has the form of a diary mm-hmm. so you have to remember this is um, 19, yeah, sort of the mid-1970s so um, I've heard it called a found footage quite, movie in style which is kind of funny well, that, 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 I, think, that, that, it's, it's, I think it's accurate, it's not only funny but it, I think it's accurate, the question is, is okay, if, if what if we if you can imagine what it's like being in the mid 1970s, what is the equivalent? What is the high tech equivalent of a diary? Yeah, and, and it's pretty much what we have now, which is a GoPro. Um, <laughs> and, if this, and I think I think what's important now, and this is like you know about yeah. five years ago, I, I was going around um, a lot of festivals with the restoration of the film, uh, which I which I co-produced. And one of the things I think it was necessary to remind people is that look, people didn't have GoPros back in 1975. This right. is a relatively new thing. But the idea of imagining, okay, in the future, if you're an astronaut, the, 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 
the modern equivalent to a diary is going to be a camera in your helmet. Yeah. So, so in fact, that became, because the first part of the story is a, a diary, yeah. it's shot from this camera in the helmet. So you have the subjective point of view and the editing is choppy as if basically they only record what they need to record. It's not yeah. edited in any conventional fashion because that's how diaries are not edited. You, you, you don't know, you, you, you only edit your life as you go along and the film is edited as it goes along. Yeah. And they have businesses where they take off the helmet and, you know, talk things like that. But uh, so that style is very much connected to the, 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 it's a function of the story. Yeah. And then the second book, The, the Conqueror, uh, which is, um, pretty much the same story as The Life of Brian by Monty Python, in which somebody gets mistaken for the Messiah. That, yeah. It has this kind of mythical quality, this, this kind of... Uh, so, so the style of that film, they used the same lens which Stanley Kubrick used in A Clockwork Orange for those very distorted scenes. It's a kino yeah. optic. I think it's 9.8 millimeter focal length, which gives yeah. this very wide field of vision and uh, so that takes the form of the second part. And then the, the third book, which is uh, it has the title, The, the Old Earth, yeah. is uh, um, a different style. It was written in the time of uh, Art Nouveau, of, and it's kind of drawing on this kind of decadence and decay. And, and you know, and of course, the author, Jerzy Zawawski, the great uncle of, of Zawawski, actually yeah. died in the trenches of the First World War. Oh. So, so, so the question, the question is, if, if, if you have this very pessimistic story about the, the kind of the collapse and the, the decay of civilization, <laughs> Uh, what what is the cinematic equivalent? And, and I yeah. think in Zawawski's mind, it was like a, a bloated historical kind of Cleopatra with Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor epic. So so you have yeah. crane shots. Uh, you have these crazy crane shots, uh, which yeah. it's almost like a parody of the kind of the Cleopatra type crane shots as you see yeah. with the, the scene with the spikes and the people. But it's it's a, it's a parodic style. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. have you have basically these these three stories with three different styles. So basically, I think that on the whole, I think you're quite right that he he does prefer white or, or did prefer right, yeah. wide angle lenses. But on the whole, I think it's a mistake to think that it, it's something he brings to the script because basically the first question is, um, what is the story and how does that translate into a style? And I, and I can tell you that. Um, I mean, you know, because I used to live in Warsaw and, and, and I used to see quite a lot of Zhivowski and, and, and around the time after his last film, so in the, in the kind of the, the, the months between the premiere of his last film uh, and his death, uh, he, he was saying, you know, everybody is moving their camera now. It's much easier to move the camera because of all these camera rigs. Um, yeah. Fuck them. I'm going to make a film <laughs> where the camera stays still. <laughs> no one will expect it. You know, that's, and that I think is an insight into to his way of thinking. And he yeah. was a, a, a man against. Yeah. So at the time, the camera didn't move in the 1970s. So it yeah. certainly moved in his films. But now yeah. everyone's, everyone can move because cameras are smaller and everyone can afford drones and rigs. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like, how do you respond to that? Well, you respond to it by having a static frame. Yeah. 
and, and then, of course, you've got another issue, which is um, if you have a moving camera, but the actors are moving, it's not a very dynamic image because right. the camera's moving, the actors are moving, there's no tension. So you yeah. can actually have, and, and Eisenstein is a good example, like Ivan Grozny, uh, Ivan the Terrible, um, where the camera is pretty static all the way through, but the actors are always appearing in the frames, going out of the frames, and it's very dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. so I think that, yeah, I think this whole debate about the dynamic aspect of cinema and moving camera is kind of um, flawed because it doesn't take into account the tension between the the, the subject, what, yeah. what's in front of the camera, and the framing. And and I think that Schwabsky and his cinematographer, because it was a a partnership uh, uh, between them, they came up with this approach. And and I think that I strongly feel that Yaroshevich is cinematographer, partly because on the Silver Globe got shut down, uh, which I'm sure we'll go on to talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't really uh, get the credit he deserved, certainly in the... mid to late 1970s. I think he was really a pioneer. I think I would go as far as to say that the fantastic, and I don't want to detract away from the, the, the wonderful cinematographer, Emmanuel uh, Lubyshevsky, or, uh, I, you know, the, the guy who does Gravity and Alfonso Cuaron. And, and oh, yeah, sure. The Revenant and uh, the Tree of Life. And, and I, I can't remember his exact name, but that guy. Yeah, but the yeah, point yeah. is, is that, what that guy is doing now and getting credit for and getting Oscars for, Yaroshevich yeah. was doing in the 1970s. Yeah. And as I said, I don't want to detract because this guy is a major cinematographer. I mean, he, he's almost certainly come about it through an independent path. Yeah. I just feel that this film in particular and Diabelle, the devil, the one that Shuevsky made before with Yaroshevich as a cameraman, that was their first partnership. That language was thrashed out in Poland with no yeah. budget, with no nothing, <laughs> almost 50 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. so you have this kind of these time capsules, these archaeological, you know, artifacts, which in their own strange way are very contemporary because uh, if you're a film student or a cinematographer, you're looking at films like The Revenant or Gravity as, as the state-of-the-art technology. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so for me, this is the real significance and... It's a credit to um, uh, Zhuwabski's conception of cinematography. And it's also a credit to uh, Yaroshevich in a very practical, non-intellectual way, being able to translate that into a moving camera. Sure, sure. Now, one thing um, I, I'm really... Because not only is on the Silver Globe... Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work of art that's, that I think everybody, that everybody should see. It's very difficult to describe, uh, but the story behind it is pretty fascinating as well. And um, I was hoping, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of talking about Jarofsky and about his, his history as a filmmaker leading up to it and the, what, the production of it and what happened with it. Well, how, how to start with that? Well, I would say that I think our perception of Poland, I mean, I'm talking about our generation, uh, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, is really kind of um, framed by the Cold War, the communist era. And we think of um, 
of poverty and also um, this crumbling communist decay. And finally, this eruption, uh, the solidarity movements, uh, the free trade union in 1980, yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the Polish Pope and Lech Wałęsa, And then eventually, 10 years later, this kind of disintegration of communism. Yeah. But I think what gets obscured is the fact that Poland was once a major country. It was once a huge country and it had this great tradition and it was a very, not so much aristocratic as a noble country. And okay. it had a class, uh, the Schlachta, the Polish nobility, yeah. uh, which had tremendous political and social influence. Okay. in uh, the way in which the country was kind of uh, governed and operated and things like that. That came to an end and the country was partitioned um, and, and Poland didn't exist for a long time until the, the 20th century again. But that class, that, that um, uh, noble class, it really, it held something. And, and, and Szewewski belongs to that noble class. The Szewewski family is a family which is not rich in material. It's not like they have palaces everywhere. Yeah. And even if they did have palaces, they were burned down or stolen by Russia or Prussia or Germany or whatever. Yeah. No, what they're rich in is in intellectual capital. So okay. it's a family of writers, of painters, of composers, of politicians. And um, amongst this family was a writer, uh, Andrzej Zhuwowski's great uncle, Jerzy Zhuwowski, yeah, who was an incredible character in that he trained as a philosopher in Switzerland. And he wrote a, an, his academic, his doctoral thesis on Spinoza. And he translated you know, fragments of Nietzsche and the Talmud into Polish. And he wrote plays uh, which had a big impact on uh, the, the, the social life of, of, of Poland at the time. He was friends with the anthropologist Bronisław Malinowski and this crazy guy called Stanisław Ignacy Witkiewicz, who was a, was a playwright, painter and dramatist who used to mm -hmm. take drugs and do portraits. And then the more <laughs> drugs he took, the more wild the portraits were and the more expensive he sold them for. <laughs> so he's a very, very interesting character. And uh, he wrote this trilogy of books well over 100 years ago now. Yeah, the you know, in the time, yeah. Exactly. In the time yeah. of Jules Verne. And those books today would be classified as science fiction. Yeah. But you also have to remember that science fiction, as we know it today, was in its infancy. Yeah. And at the time, I would say that Eastern European science fiction, and this is a perfect example, it was much more related to allegorical fiction. Yeah. Of, uh, and so, uh, and, you know, The Heart of the Dog by Bulgakov, things like yeah. that. Yeah, as opposed so, to like so, simple adventure stories. Like these were books about ideas, right? They were books about ideas. That's not to say that they're not space operas. Right, Silver right. Globe is a space opera, but it's in a it's in a it's a space opera in a slightly different way than Star Wars is a space opera. They yeah. are both space operas, but I, I think that uh, on the Silver Globe is much more closer to the uh, the the Wagnerian primordial kind of you know mythical tradition of um, thinking of um, 
of opera, let's say. Yeah. So you have these three books, and, and I think in simple terms, I mean, I, I think one of the interviews I sent is that about yeah, 12, 12, 12 years ago, I spent about a month or two months going to Chwabski's house to spend the afternoons adapting the dialogue into to English on the Silver Globe. And whilst I was doing that, uh, I was recording our conversations. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he knew it wasn't, wasn't secret it was just for for posterity because his explanations were interesting and i thought it would be useful to have yeah uh, at some point and one of the things he said was that um the structure of the first two books for him was very much like the bible so the yeah. first part of the story is the old testament it's the it's the the myth coming into being yeah. And the second part is kind of the New Testament. So it's the story of Christ. Right. So you have all of the people who believe in the myth and how yeah. they deal with this stranger who who they think is has, you know, godlike powers. Yeah. But who doesn't? And that's why I mentioned right. Life of Brian. Yeah. And, because this uh, is like a retelling of the Bible by somebody who doesn't really like the Bible that much, right? Or somebody's a critic of the Bible, let's say. Well, um, that, that, that's—I think that's a—that's a, another. Uh, I'm not just saying that, but I think that's another very interesting thing to say because mm. the question is: Is this a religious film, or an, is this a pro-religious film, or an anti-religious film? Because yeah. the time at which the 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 original novels were written was the time of Nietzsche, the time yeah. of God is Dead, let's yeah. say. And the time at which the films were made, and the films are in no way a straightforward ad adaptation of the books. Right. Uh, but the time the films were made, um, uh, the, this was Poland under communism, and of course religion was bad. Uh, the good guys at the time, not like now, but at the yeah. time were in fact, uh, it was the Catholic Church. Yeah. So religion had this very strange kind of position, let's say, in Polish official society and unofficial society. Yeah. And I think there's something which, um, if you look at the film and, uh, closely, I think it is, is applicable then as it is today. And that is a distinction between um, religion and the dogmatic application of religion and religion uh, in uh, institutions so sort of like the difference between simple modest faith or belief in something versus a corrupt church which right. is susceptible to money and, and 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 political alliance yeah and and i think that's something very much true of poland today in the way that uh i would never describe myself as against the catholic church you know i think augustine right is really a fascinating writer and it's beautiful to read and it's resulted in so much wonderful architecture and culture. At the same time, I cannot reconcile this with these grotesque churches, with yeah. these corrupt uh, people who are prone to whatever political faction or financial donorship and are just being so hypocritical. And yeah. I think that on the Silver Globe, it sort of mines that uh, juncture between yeah. the religious impulse and the importance of the uh, religious predisposition, which is a central idea to philosophy in both Kant and Hegel, 
Uh, And the idea that what distinguishes us from from animals is that, you know, animals don't have an aesthetic sensibility. Like they don't, that's not a beautiful sunset. Yeah. And it's something uniquely human about that's a beautiful sunset. And could we extend that idea to religion? So the idea that we, you know, we, we, um, we may see a crucifix, but what we actually see is the same, what it symbolizes rather than the, the, the drawing or right, the, the right. sculpture. So I think that impulse, I think, was is at the heart of certainly the first part of On the Silver Globe. And then yeah. the second part, you see this kind of transformation of this impulse into institutions and mythologies and expectations and power and money, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and corruption yeah. and rottenness. And, and reinterpretation, uh, it seemed. Like well, uh, that, yeah. that that very much too, and and I think that you you, you I think that it's it's something which I think is very much important today today in the way that we have this very polarized approach towards religion. People either religious or not religious, but I think that there is a more nuanced uh, position whereby you can um, appreciate a religious predisposition, but at the same right. time being great, you know, skeptical and critical of people who use religion for their own ends, usually yeah, power yeah, yeah. or oppression. Yeah. And I think that's very much true in the States. It's very much certainly true in Poland. And it's also the case in England. Yeah. So I think that by approaching this subject as a, as a parable, which is how the books did and how Jaworski yeah. did, it still makes, you know, I, I hate it when people say a film or a book is relevant, but it is relevant. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is what we're going through today. You know, every yeah. time somebody, uh, you know, attacks someone for their sexuality or whatever, it's usually on, on, on yeah. the guise of some sort of idiosyncratic reading of the Bible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and so, so basically religion has been used to, to hit someone on the head. Right, it's right, been, right. It's been used to hit someone in the head in the States, in Poland, in Georgia, in Russia, certainly. Yeah. And uh, the way in which they, for example, you've got this, this war going on at the moment and the, the role that Orthodox churches is, is being, you know, playing in this war and yeah. things like that. So, and I think, again, if you look at On the Silver Globe and the way that um, you have a church invoked in the second half of the novel, uh, sorry, yeah. the second part of the film, in a religious war. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, it, I think it's. It's a series of books which, which um, there's this German um, philosopher Ernst Cassirer who who, who um, define man or woman, as we should say, uh, as, as, as 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 a creature which produces symbols. Yeah, it's a symbol creature, and and I think that that's. That that is something that these books and this film captures: the fact that we are what what defines us as as, as creatures is our ability to create myths right. and mythology, yeah. and then so trapped, we're also victims of that mythology. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and 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 it's a very pessimistic book or series of books, and it's a very pessimistic film. So that the very thing which distinguishes us is also the thing which traps us. Right, right. Because I was watching it. I, I think it was more foremost in my mind was they were the way that people were the, the whatever the alien race, the humanoid alien race that, that comes up on the silver globe, that they uh, were translating their world incorrectly, like they're processing it wrong. 
uh, into these myths, into these, these things that were not factually true. And that was holding them back. But you're right. Like they're, you're absolutely right. You know, it's like there is this level of symbolism there. That's also how they created their culture and their society. It wasn't just this thing that created their, their uh, problems, you know? Um, but I want I was saying about, um, so as far as I know, well, just, just, Oh yeah, go on, go on. To that very, very briefly. I mean, I think the time in which these novels were written, I think it's yeah. important to remember that two things. First, Poland didn't exist. Okay. Uh, and at the same time, this is a time of empires, the British empire, the French empire, the, you know, the, the Belgian Congo. So this is a time the Dutch, uh, you know, the East India, all, yep. all of this kind of empires around yeah. the world. And, um, and I think it, it, it's almost, um, it's, it's important to remember that this is, um, Poles in a time when the country is kind of, uh, partitioned between, um, all of these other different empires, which only exist, Poland only existed as a language and as yeah. a, a, you know, as a heritage. This fantasy, the fact that we could colonize the moon. Yeah. You know, and uh, and then if we could colonize the moon, as and as in a Jules Verne novel, how would we yeah. colonize it, and what would happen? Well, what would happen is we would take whatever mythology from our home, and it would replicate that. It wouldn't be specific to that region, and I think that's that's what differentiates it and makes it unique in that respect. Um, okay. In the way that you, you, you can. You know, the grass is always greener. You, you can, it's the same story as like uh, the, the Mosquito Coast, uh, which uh, I haven't seen the new TV series, but I'm assuming it's the same as both the book and Peter Weir's film. It's the same story of uh, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which yeah. is the basis of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, you know, the idea of going somewhere and starting afresh and, and how these utopian ideas always turn to shit. Yes. And, uh, you know, and this is, it's, it's a very pessimistic way of looking at it, but I think it's, uh, it's something I think about today. I mean, certainly when people talk about, um, yeah, this hypothetical world when everything's going to be happy, or if we, if we, if we, if we sell our apartment in the city and go to the countryside, we will, you know, grow our own food and have our own check-ins and things like that. And, you know, and, and of course, um, it's great when it pans out, but it very rarely does. And I yeah, think that yeah, yeah. on the silver globe, is that on a massive scale? <laughs> All right. Well, I want to just talk briefly about um, uh, Jarofsky's kind of bi- biography because uh, he did The Devils. I believe that's his first film. And then that's... No, 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 no. He oh, did, his, first, okay. his first film was called The Third Part of the Night. Okay, and okay. that was loosely based... Uh, on his father's wartime experiences. And then he did a film called The Devil, yeah. uh, which on the surface is a kind of a gothic uh, period drama, but it, it, that's a kind of a mask for a, um, a political maneuver, uh, which the, um, the uh, Polish Communist Party enacted in 1968 in Warsaw. Yeah. And the mask wasn't as thick as it should have been and they fought through it and yeah. you know, so uh, and that was the reason for him going to France to make uh, L'Empoton Sodome with Romy Schneider and uh, right. which became a, a, a celebrated 
uh, film, right? It's an iconic. I mean, I think it's it's one of the defining French films of the 1970s. It, yeah, it really. It, it really. I mean, when I first started to, to, to visit Paris quite regularly to, to simply see films, because Paris is a is a, a film capital, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, it's getting less and less because of. Uh, the change in distribution and technology, but certainly in the late nineties, you could go there and, and see all the classics in the cinema. And yeah. one of the films you could see almost certainly every week was Lampotons of Deme. And that's how right. I first saw it. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what, what shocked French audiences, because it was based on a book written by an Englishman, by the way, who wrote in French called yeah. Christopher Frank. Uh, the, the book and the story is very melodramatic. It's a love triangle. All yeah. of Schwabski's films are love triangles. If you look at them closely, every single one, including the yeah. shorts and the TV films, they're all love triangles. Yeah. Well, and, uh, yeah. and 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 I, I work with him on several projects. Uh, yeah. which Possession's very happen. interesting. It's a love triangle exactly. involving a monster. Exactly. That's yeah. The, yeah. It's it's. it's uh, well, it's a, it's a love square that one because you've got you've got you know you've got two you got Heinrich and the monster and and, right. and Mark. So it's yeah. All, I was trying one. to count up all the doubles and figure out what kind of shape we were dealing with in terms of love and possession by the end of it. But your but point the monster, is very good. the monster spoiler alert turns into Mark, so it's probably yeah. a triangle again. So yeah. uh, you know he, he was being betrayed <laughs> by himself, but uh, uh, but so 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 you have. Um, yeah, on the surface, it's a melodramatic love triangle. But I think what yeah. was so shocking for French audiences was how it was filmed, which is how we were discussed. Yeah, the way it, it's filmed, not not in a polite way. It's filmed like I don't know, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, but a relationship drama, you know, with a camera in the face and <laughs> moving around, and you know, uh, and, and then on top of that, the, the violence of the emotions. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. there is violence in the film, but what really hurts and what's really shocking is the emotional violence. And, and I think that really, um, it happened in a specific moment in French culture. It was a few years after the, the, the student riots of 68. So there was some sort of liberalization in, in culture, but um, at the same time, it, it was a, a, a shock. Yeah. Yes, there are yeah. orgy scenes with real porno actors. I mean, they're not fucking, but, but <laughs> so yes, you have this, superficial shock value but the real shock is emotional yeah, yeah, that basically yeah. you had a filmmaker with this temperament and this predisposition who was going to say okay you know what a breakup feels like or you know what a betrayal feels like i'm really going to show that this yeah. isn't this isn't the hollywood version this <laughs> is the real pain the the, the real agony the real yeah. gut feeling of a of a betrayal or an affair yeah, and, and and that's really it had a huge impact in France, and yeah. uh, it it, um, it didn't quite have the impact abroad for various reasons, maybe right. distribution or, or or just temperament, but it did give a certain prestige which was attractive to yeah. the poles when they wanted right. to kind of lure him back with the idea that exactly. Yeah, so they so this they see this this film and it's, and it's celebration. I mean, it's being celebrated in France and so forth. And then like, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna try to entice you to come back and make a movie, and we're gonna let you do whatever you want, right? Because they wanted sort of this 
uh, I mean, well, you would say this better than I would. I, I'm going to get all the nuances wrong. But so what happens with regards to Jaworski well, in Poland? Jaworski, well, rather. He told me, and I'm not saying yeah. he was the most reliable narrator, but he told me that after the success of Lampadon Sodeme, he got offered a number of projects, including a Patricia Highsmith adaptation. Uh, I know oh, that's he also really interesting. He also had a script which he wrote with the author of that Lumpadon Sodoma called The Kingdom Within, which is a yeah. reference to Tolstoy. He wasn't going to address deep water, was he? That That's a good point, actually, because, I mean, that's obviously the Adrian Lyne film was just out. And, yeah, and that, yeah. is, that is exactly what we're talking about with love triangles and affairs and infidelities. Yeah, and that yeah, is yeah. A, I don't know which project he was offered, but that's okay. a very that's something I will note and, and, and look into. But I think that's a very good point. Okay. Um, I mean that that was filmed in France, but later I think in, in the late seventies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm and, sorry, uh, you're talking about his what he was doing up and what Jaworski uh, was doing up until. Um... Well, well, he he was offered these things, but but I think that the. You have to remember that, that he, he, he was in a relationship with, with a Polish actress and he was sort of living between Poland and, and France. Yeah. And um, uh, now the, the question is, when I interviewed him, uh, he said that the Silver Globe was um, a response to his personal crisis. And there's been a recent documentary uh, and that really buys into that idea that, in fact, it was some sort of personal exorcism to his. Now, the cinematographer of Lampaton Sodome assures you me. You sound skeptical. Talking, he assures <laughs> me, the cinematographer, that he was already talking about making this science fiction film in Poland before yeah. that relationship ever fell okay. apart. So. So I think that, you know, it's, I'm, I don't, you know, it, it, I, I did a commentary with, with Zhuevsky for Possession like 20, 20, 22 years ago. It's funny, oh, but wow, it's on yeah. YouTube. And, and there was one of the things he says, it's just that, uh, he, and, and he said it a lot. He yeah. used to like quoting John Ford and the end of uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yeah. You know, the scene where if you have choice between... Printing the truth or the legend, always print the legend. Yes, yeah. The, prob- the problem with Shawowski is that he printed his own legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the point is, is that, and I think this is something which is really fascinating with on the Silver Globe, and it's something which we can return to later on in the, in the discussion. Is that yeah. this is a film about myth making, of which yeah. the director subsequently made a myth about the film <laughs> yes so you got and, and then now you've got people like me and you've got documentaries complicit yeah. in that myth and, yeah. and then you have a situation whereby people who are drawn and attracted and i think this proves Schwarzky's point the fact that they love the idea of these brutal communists crushing this film oh yeah, you know, yeah it's yeah. attractive to them and right. uh so, well, tell, so tell, I, you're I, given Tell the story though, just like lay it, lay it out first. Like, well, so he, they bring him, they bring him in to do this. And then, then what happens? So, so, so he makes, he basically, uh, they, they give him resources, which are huge by Polish standards, but not so huge by Western standards. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the important thing to remember, and, and this is 
this is something I think has been lost in Poland uh, and yeah, it's been yeah, forgotten. Yeah. And I think it's easy for me to discern as a, a non-Pole. Uh, but I, you know, I went to Poland to, 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 as a student to, to live and study in Poland 20 years ago. So it was barely 10 years after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc. And, and I think it was an interesting period because you have this um, openness to the West and to the capitalism. And when I arrived, you ended up with this kind of schizophrenia in Polish culture, whereby on the one hand, you had people wanting to embrace the West and to mimic the West and to yeah. do a West on the cheap because living costs are cheaper in Poland. And, and you yeah. can see this in, in, in the manufacture of cars, yeah. in a way that, you know, you have more and more as time has gone on the cars have been manufactured more and more east to the point yeah. where now one of the debates in france right now is why renault are still operating their factory in russia yeah um so that's one aspect but the other aspect is is that and this relates again to this conflict in ukraine but who are you as people you know who are, where are your roots yeah. So I think when I arrived, there was this kind of this, this Janus complex of people looking backwards and forwards. Yeah. And, uh, and not really being able to work it out effectively, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that one of the reasons which attracted me to the artists of the past, uh, Grotowski in theatre, Gombrowicz in, in literature, Zhuwalski and Borowczyk in, in cinema and the visual arts, is because they made a virtue out of poverty. Hmm. The, the fact that they didn't have anything was the very reason that the films look so great. Yeah. Because they were limited and they found a sort of weird poetry in this poverty. And the Silver Globe is an example. I mean, it looks so opulent. It looks crazy yeah. and rich. But when you think about it, these are really brilliant, poor solutions. Yeah. Okay. You want to desert? Now today, if you're if you're like the guy who's directing The Mandalorian, well, yeah. you shoot on a screen, you shoot with a LED screen, oh, and, yeah. and, and you do everything digitally, and then the actors interact with the LED screen, and it looks wonderful. Yeah. Of course, this is 1975. You don't have that technology. Yeah. But you do have a real fucking desert. You have the yeah. Gobi Desert, not the Sahara, because then you'd have to go west. You have to deal with visas. You have to pay people. No, yeah. you've got this country, you've got this huge, this, the Eastern Bloc, you know, the, 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 the Soviet Union is massive and it, it goes all the way to Kamchatka and, and you've got the Mongolia, this desert yeah. next to China, yeah. a real desert. So yeah, let's real salt mines real to desert. film in and, and so forth. Exactly. So you've got an underground subterranean world and you have this, this, this crazy salt mines, which require minimal scent decoration. Yeah. So, so, so basically, all of these things are. And then they're doing really, stuff like uh, they're they're gluing feathers to fish and things like that to make. Exactly. Like, who, who, needs, creatures. Who, needs, yeah. who needs who needs CGI when you have super glue? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or the sequence with the hand being nailed to the cross using a real hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So from a morgue. Uh, so, so basically, it looks opulent. It looks complicated, but in fact, it's actually. Um, and I think this is an issue which Shawowski was very sensitive about because the very reason when the film was ultimately shut down, the official reason uh, was, was that it was cost overruns and budget management. Yeah. 
but in fact, that was also the, the reason for all of the delays, the fact that they never got the, the props because the economy was collapsing and they never got, you know, all the basic elements to shoot with. Yeah. How long were they uh, working on that movie? Uh, it went into production. I mean, that, it went into production shooting in 76 and was shut down in 77. So it was yeah. like a, over it's a interesting to know, like the production seems roughly contemporaneous with the original Star Wars, I think. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah. Exactly. I think it, uh, I, it's the shooting, they started shooting before Star Wars. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's something which in, in, the, in the documentary, which is uh, the, the recently come out in the way that they talk about, oh, well, if, if Silver Globe had been completed, it would have beaten Star Wars. I'm sorry. No, it's, Silver no. Globe is Silver Globe is many things, but it's not Star Wars. I, I I think it's a very Polish fantasy to think that we that if the film had been completed, we we would be playing with action figures of Marek and certain <laughs> characters. That wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and it, and it won't happen in the way that. Uh, um, yeah, it's it's a very different thing. Yeah, but it is yeah. interesting. It's an interesting that yeah, George Lucas was shooting in Tunisia. Uh, yeah. in the deserts there for, for tattoo. I, I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I mean, not I am a Star Wars fan, but I'm not a uh, I don't know all the names, but it's Tatooine, isn't it? I think it's Tatooine, yeah, 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 that's where you're shooting then, in Tunisia, yeah. And then, and then, then they're, they're shooting in Mongolia for the, uh, the, the, the planet, and uh, so yeah, there, there are some interesting parallels in that respect, but yeah, it was it was expensive by Polish standards, but but really quite poor and I think that they only had one camera I mean this is oh really it's crazy when you think of like how many cameras Ridley Scott shoots with it's like yeah. 12 or 15 or something <laughs> like that uh, but but yeah they had one camera and yeah. there's one shot in the film and you can see it later on when it's quite obvious when the, the cameraman gets hit by a car which is reversing <laughs> I mean the camera I mean you, you can see which shot it is but the camera was broken and they had to because they were in Mongolia, they had to hammer it all out with a hammer to to, 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 to function again. <laughs> so, so the idea that this is this is sort of I mean, this is part of the myth. Which you know, yeah. do you do you do you undermine this myth? Yeah. Uh, so this is why I say, well, okay, it was expensive by Polish standards in the 1970s, but it yeah. wasn't an expensive film. And if you yeah. look at the film. It's not an expensive film, but that's what makes it interesting. The fact that they didn't have CGI, they didn't have all those resources, makes them come up with really interesting solutions, which are horrible to shoot. Uh, I've been down those salt mines several times. You know, I've yeah. shot the film down there, I've directed theatre down there. It's horrible. Yeah, and they they're saying like well, even just the costumes were just diff- were like torturous to be inside. They said, you know, like well, like- I mean, I, I worked with a costume designer. She did a, a costume for a theater production I directed in Poland, and they looked great. Yeah, but they were a nightmare on a on a practical level. Yeah, uh, and, and we're having this, and, and this is the the the, the trade off between the difference between theater and film. If you're doing theater, you're doing the same performance night in, night out. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and whereas with film, you just get the shot and move on. Yeah. And uh, because you only do it once. Yeah. Uh, so you have these these fabulous costumes which are made out of basically bandages used for for wrapping but wounds and things like that. That's what it's made out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they tear easily and they're heavy. They weigh a ton and and uh, so they look fabulous. Uh, and yeah. actor was a genius and, 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 I, and I use that word not in a 
promotional Hollywood kind of, she really was a genius. Yeah. Uh, but it, it adds the, another layer of like the, I guess the Shern costume was, was very difficult and very cumbersome. And like the, the one person who's playing a Shern is in like water for a long time in a long scene. And you're like, that must've been, that must've been terrifying to perform. That, that guy was, um, uh, yeah, he, he's an interesting character. He's, he's no longer with us. Um, yeah. Yeah, his. Um, I, I'm just. I've written him down because I, I, I thought it was worth mentioning his name. I just need to. To to find out where I've written his name down. Oh <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Andrzej Lubitsch Piotrowski, who okay. was an an artist, uh, and I think he was jumping between Paris and Brussels at the time, and um, he was in awe of Shuwavski, and um, he. Um, he was both an assistant, but he also played uh, Avi, the, the main Shern creature. Yeah. And um, now, in the little documentary, the Tvardon Landavani, the, 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 the kind of the making of documentary they made when they completed the film in '88, yeah. there are people talking about how this, this this actor had to go to a psychiatric ward. <laughs> Uh, and then I, I met, I did a, curated an exhibition in London with, I, they, they asked, uh, there's a wonderful institution in London called the Horse Hospital, yeah. which by the way is a real Victorian horse hospital. Uh, and then they asked to do an exhibition of, of this costumes from the Silver Globe. So um, I went to Rotswav and the costumes were, were falling apart. So um, they had to be repaired. And while yeah. we were, while they were being repaired, they were telling stories about how this Avi Shun had been electrocuted by the crew to have these lights and things like this. And, and then I spoke oh, to Yarishevich about this, and he said, "No, no, 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 no. This guy was completely crazy. He was completely okay, crazy, okay. and he was a method actor. So he was really thought he was a Shun, oh. and he was an artist. And so he did these amazing, amazing drawings of Shuns, which we exhibited in London. Yeah." Uh, yeah. I mean, they're absolutely incredible these drawings, but but he he was basically in that costume in that in that character. Yeah, and and I think the question is is um, and again I think it's a subject which isn't touched on in the documentary, but it is very relevant, and that is um, to what degree is the director responsible for the mental health and hardship of the actor? Yeah. Or, to what degree does the director inspire this madness or to what degree does such people attract such yeah. people? Do yeah. crazy, you know, is a folly a dirt, as they say in France, you know, a madness That's interesting. Because it makes so, me think I, of, in the conversation we had before we record this, we were, we, we were talking, we mentioned Stalker. And, exactly. Yeah. And Stalker is an interesting thing to bring into that idea. Cause I mean, it's a, one of the greatest movies of all time. And yet everybody, like, I guess everybody had long-term health problems from the filming of it. Right. Well, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I was in Tashkent uh, in October and one of the reasons I was there was to um, interview a fantastic director called Ali Hamrayev, who um, he's most famous for directing um, Tajik Westerns, which were like Soviet spaghetti Westerns, but oh, shot in Tajikistan. Yeah, and he and he did a great film called The Seventh Bullet, which is like a Sergio Leone film, but in 1970s Tajikistan. 
Uzbekistan. Cool. That, that one's, and it's all widescreen and it, it's yeah. just great. It's wonderful. I'm going to have to but seek he, that out. It's, it's on YouTube. I, I oh, really? And, he, I, I, and he's had a film called The Bodyguard, which has the same crew as Stalker. Same okay. music, same actor. Oh, wow. Uh, the same actors, the same everything. And the reason is, it's very interesting, is that originally Stalker was going to be shot in Tajikistan. Okay. And there was it. an earthquake. And when there was an earthquake, it was impossible to shoot that. So at short notice, they shot in Estonia. Yeah, and and then after they shot, they 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 did another film, a western or an eastern with Hamrayev yeah. in Tajikistan, uh, the Bodyguard. Yeah. But when they shot in um, Estonia, like the Silver Globe, yeah, they didn't um, they didn't build sets; they appropriated sets. Yeah. So I think it was a it was an old power station or a hydroelectricity station in That's Estonia. That's right. Yeah. And, and and by using that location, uh, unfortunately, that's when they came into contact with uh, carcinogenic chemicals, which resulted in the, the premature death of pretty much everyone who worked on that film, oh. uh, which is tragic, but it also added to the mythology of the film yeah, in, absolutely. in its own uh, horrible yeah. way. And uh, and I think that, yeah, I mean, that's, that is, again, is something related to... Um, on the Silver Globe and, yeah. uh, and, and the way that so, I think how, how many people today would how would you justify to a producer I want to shoot at a salt mine <laughs> or I want to shoot in a power station right. with all the health and safety issues with all the you know the pressure I mean I, I just yeah. saw a film which I really enjoyed the big book the Jean-Pierre Junet film which has just been released on Netflix oh yeah and, I, I didn't. I didn't love reviews. it. I stopped halfway through, honestly. Well, terrible reviews and everything else. But yeah. I couldn't help thinking how much I probably would have warmed to it a bit more if it was physical rather than digital. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, my, that might have been my thing with it. Yeah. And and and, and you know, to all those robots to be you know like the city of lost children or, or alien. Right. Or, uh, I mean, do you, know, you, I, do I you love, speak French? Oh, I, I'm not going to put myself on a pedestal in public and say I speak French. No, but you, but you, you could understand, like, you could watch that movie with, like, in French, right? Yeah, we went, went well. We, I watched it dubbed. I was with uh, my partner, and we watched it dubbed at the weekend. And all oh, okay, stuff. I watched it dubbed I, in I, English. I, only, yeah, I, I watched it subtitled, actually, the other night, and yeah. the sound in French, they, they put a lot more work into the the sound mixing and uh, the voices. It sounds awful in the English dub, I thought. It was it's good. pretty bad. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty off-putting. Bad. Yeah. So, so I, I would recommend me giving it another shot in the original French version. Sure, okay. But anyway, but, just to get back to the, the myth same, making the of um, of on yeah. the Silver Globe. So, like, so he the, it gets stopped, production stops, everybody's, you know, whatever. Then he moves on to possession. Well, it, gets, it, it, it gets it gets stopped for. I mean, yeah. the, the um, yeah. I mean, they shot an awful lot. I mean, it's it's like. Um, I can't remember what he says in the, the, the introduction. It's like three-fifths or something like this. Um, but it says, yeah, 70% of the film. They, yeah. They'd already started building. The, the plan was that the last part of the film was going to be shot in Georgia, in the Caucasus Mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there is this funny story. Um, there's a German UFO book in which they're talking about a UFO in the Caucasus. Yeah. And in fact, it's actually scenography, which they started to build. Yeah. And, um, and then left because of the cost of the production. Hmm. 
had closed and and some Soviet UFO nuts had, had interpreted this as proof of UFOs landing and <laughs> spotted by an Azerbaijan fighter jet. And then that book had been translated into German. Yeah. Uh, and and, and then, then that German book was translated into Polish and then someone who worked on the film wrote a letter saying, no, 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 I actually built this. <laughs> it was yeah. built in Rotswell. <laughs> and so, that, I mean, that's, but yeah, so they built this, 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 the, the, the spaceship landing on the planet. Um, yeah. So they actually built that in Rotswell. They took it yeah. to, to Georgia and, and the climbers took it to the, to the top of them. And, and they, so they prepared all that, but they never got around to shooting it. And, um, and and then there were you know there were all sorts of officially it was because of the budget overruns unofficially because of course it's at the time of the Cold War it was for political reasons and people had 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 seen through the film like the devil and there was some sort of you know subversive political message. Do you think there uh, is a subversive political message? No, no, I think it's it's quite it's it's as as was always said at the time and yeah. and, and always will be on the, on the one hand on the one hand. Chwewski embellished and made it sound more, um, yeah, uh, draconian than perhaps it was. In right. That, you know, because he was in France or the U.S. And you know, what, if you're a poor Polish filmmaker trying to get a project off the ground in the middle of the Cold War in Reagan era kind of uh, Hollywood. Yeah. What better way to say that you directed a film that's been shut down by the authorities? So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, you know, I think that that's something that shouldn't be ignored. But yeah. you know, the, the, the rather banal, the the, the the truth, let's say, is is a career politician, and this is somebody yeah. who was um, everything he said was highly calculated. Uh, and, and I think that um, you know, you get these people. Um, Look, I, I'm just talking about. I'm just talking randomly, and I'll instantly regret half of the things I've said to you. Um, and, and I know that they'll be out on the internet, and they'll come back to bite me Wonderful. later on. Uh, I mean, that's how it is. But I can't do it any other way. And yeah. and, and, and that's my camp. But there are other kind of people who who basically have the capacity to um, to um, present themselves in a very sculpted way, in a very calculated way. Uh, to say the th- right things, the right words, yeah. to, to, to ingratiate themselves, to behave even sycophantically to, to all of these things, to, to advance their own career, the, the worm tongue in the second part of Lord of the Rings, that type of yeah. person. Yeah. And, and they're everywhere. They're, on, they're, they're writers like that. There are filmmakers like that. There are, you know, there's everyone like that, these kind of career politicians yeah. uh, with a small P, people who know what to say to advance the career. And unfortunately, that, that was the kind of character which killed this production. Somebody who yeah. saw an opportunity to, to make a name for themselves, to set a precedent. Right. And, uh, and, and, and had no qualms about throwing this production under the bus. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, and this the documentary which recently came out, it, the crew is unified in the tragedy. But if you look at the older documentary, it's quite clear that a lot of the crew were relieved that the film was shut down because yeah. they were just couldn't understand why they were working on it, and it was hell. <laughs> so, so, so that basically you had a politician who who really saw an opportunity, could draw upon this um, uh, lack of faith, the yeah. loss of faith, and uh, and shut down the production to make a point. 
to yeah. make a point about what kind of films being made in Poland. Why are we making this? Yeah. Why are we making it with that bastard? Yeah. And um, now he was able, because, you know, Zhivovsky, uh, his father was a diplomat, and he was educated in France, and he had connections in France, and one of those connections was an executive who was working uh, for Paramount, uh, Charlie Bloodhorn's advisor, a guy called Christian Ferry. Yeah. And uh, Christian... Um, you know, I, I met Christian towards the end of his life and I interviewed him and he was a really wonderful guy. But he arranged, he knew that Chowowski, along with the cinematographer, along with the costume designer, were all blacklisted because they were yeah. they were the fall guys and go uh, for this production. Yeah. But he gave he gave a way out for, for Chowowski to go to the States. I mean, he paid basically his... Because you didn't have passports at the time, so yeah. you know it, it, that's how you cap people, uh, yeah. and so he was able to 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 pay off and and to get him out, and and it was at that point he actually had a script which he'd originally written in Poland called Pot Four, which is Polish for monster, and um, he basically pitched that, but not in Warsaw, but in I think the original pitch was in Detroit. Uh, and that became possession. Oh, wow. All right. Well, um, we've been talking for over an hour. I'm sorry. I, I have to kind of move on to other things as, as wonderful as this conversation has been. But I had, a, I had a proposal for you. If you would, I would love to talk to you again and have the whole conversation be about possession sometime. Uh, is that, is that I, something I, that interests you? Be, it, it, it would be... Um, uh, a, a, a pleasure, as always, to talk about possession. It's, uh, it's a yeah. remarkable film, and it's, it's such a pleasure that it's finally getting the attention I think it's always deserved. Yeah, and uh, and of course, in many ways, it's the um, the uh, well. I think if possession is the A side on the Silver Globe, is the B side. Yeah, uh, I know chronologically it's not that way around, but yeah, they are at the end of the day, they are both films about. Um, unfaithful women who, who uh, <laughs> have affairs with monsters and very yes. different films, but they're uh, both films about infidelity and monsters. So uh, yeah. it, it does make a kind of an interesting diptych. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. And the, the other thing I was going to say was that um, you were talking about how the, the, the story of the, the astronaut back on earth and like the unfaithful um, woman, like that was kind of looked like an epic Hollywood kind of uh Cleopatra thing. Well, I was watching it through the filter of my experience, and I was like, "This looks like an '80s MTV video to me. Like, this could be well, like it does. It does. I mean, you think of Mad Max, and you think this is before yeah. Mad Max, but it does look like a Mad Max ripoff. Yeah. Well, there's that. There's that. But there's also like when he's like walking into that like wall of blue light or something like that. Like it's something very like new wave kind of look and feel, but it predates. Oh, that whole aesthetic by several years it's and the drama enough. to it. Yeah. The, 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 the uh, most of the film, I mean, the, it's interesting when you look at the script and the way that just as a little aside, and I won't, I won't be too long on this, but there was, um, when we did the restoration, a Polish producer came up to me terribly excited and said, I have this fantastic idea. Why don't we animate all the sequences, which were not filmed and we can have a whole film. The problem with that idea is, is that that presupposes there was a concrete locked script 
Oh yeah, and, and, and I think that that you know a lot of filmmakers, and especially when you work on films, and you know, and I've worked on a few films, uh, is that a lot of them change during the production. You, yeah. you, your script is a start, a springboard. Yeah. I mean, I worked on Kill List with with Dan Wheatley, and I can assure you that the film that was shot was very, very different from the film we saw in the cinema. Yeah, and, and I won't say in what way. That's 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 purely for for Ben Ben Wheatley to to disclose if he wants to or not at all. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, is that basically that is the working process and the yeah. uh, the artistic decisions you make about what to include, what not to include, and how to change things. It's not a failing on the part of the filmmaker. Rather, it's them adapting to the material. Yeah. And, and in the case of Jaworski, that's how he works in the way that he would write something. And, and, and this was certainly the case of the films which I was present for. He would have an actor's read-through. Yeah. And then based on the read-through, he would change everything. Then he would go to the floor. And then the night before the scenes, he would have another read-through of the scenes and then change them again. Yeah, and the films would change throughout the production. So, so the, on the Silver Globe, uh, there are some points it's referred to as two films, like a two-part film. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and that's how you know it's like Stalker was a two-part film. Yeah, uh, Solaris and Andrei Rublev, they were often two-part films. Would Jurarski, would, would he let would, would he let actors improvise, or is that all? Are they saying memorize lines? No, that, that's that's all. It's not the he could change things, but they're not improvising. Really? Because he uses such long them. takes, and it's so like I couldn't imagine. It's, it's a, like, all of these people like Cameron, the reason why you don't hear his voice, and I think that's what the the archival the the crash landing is is how I translated it. The Tvardan that that little thirty minute making of. If yeah. you listen to the voice of the actor, it's very different from what you hear in the film. Uh, and the reason is, is that that actor is a very good actor called Andrzej Severin. In the 1980s, after the, the kind of martial law, he ended up in Paris working for Peter Brook, you know, the legendary English theatre director. Okay. And uh, so that's why he's dubbed by a different actor in the final version, Michal Bayo. Uh, and uh, the voice and the acting... Don't quite mix, in my opinion, the, okay. the, the, the two things. But um, uh, but Severin, you know, it's a great act. And the same with um, Grazina Dillong, who plays Ikhazel. She yeah. she moved to Vienna and, and, and she's had a great career as an actor and also an acting teacher. Yeah. But she started in this kind of avant-garde theatre tradition. So, and I think this is something which is, it's... Um, it's very similar to Ken Russell in that respect, in the way that just as Ken Russell drew on these mainly theatre actors yeah. for his films, so did Jawowski. And, and it's the same in France. I mean, he often, Francis Huster, who's in La Femme Publique and La Mobrac, theatre actor. Yeah. And uh, so, so basically, if you're a theatre actor, unlike film, you're used to memorising whole plays. Oh, yeah, it's true. And also used to going big and playing to the back rows. Used to going back. Big and back rows. I mean, when you think of it, playing to the back rows is playing to a wide-angle lens. Ah, yes. So, so, and I think that 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 is important, that dynamic to remember. You can go big if you've got a big lens with the right focal length because you've got all this space around you. This, you know, whether it's a salt mine or a beach or the sea, yeah. you might as well be playing to a back row in a theatre. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, if you've got if you've got a camera with a long focal length lens on your face, there's no space, no depth. You're acting with your eyes. Yeah. And so, so I think that it's not. I mean, all of these discussions about acting for theatre and film, I think, are quite facile. It's not. It's not about one's right and one's wrong. It's about the dynamic. Right. And if you yeah. if you're using this lens and this focal length and this space, and you've got a body in a background. You yeah. have to act with the whole body yeah. because you can't see your face. You can see yeah. the arms, you can see the legs. And you have to shout because it wouldn't sound right otherwise. Yeah. So that dynamic makes perfect sense to me. And I think he understood that. And of course, when the camera, and there are moments in possession, there's one shot. Possession is shot with pretty much with only two lenses. Except okay, yeah. one shot, except there's like, actually there's two shots. There's, there's one shot, which is a zoom from yeah. out of the window following the detective. And there's another shot when, when the, the second detective comes into the room looking for the first detective and you yeah. see a close up of Isabella Johnny's face. And it's a very long lens, which yeah. is totally the opposite to the rest of the film. And, uh, but that, if you look at a performance, you've just got this very sad expression, very, very quiet and simple. It works. Yeah. And, and so it's really, it's a dynamic, I think, between the, yeah, what what are you filming and what lens and, and everything else? It's not, it's not, he was very, he was capable of doing those subtle facial uh, accents and direction. Yeah. As much as he was doing big. And, yeah, and I yeah. think that's that's the job of the day. What point? It's like a composer. When, when, when you know, when do you go quiet and when do you go loud? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and it's, it's not one or the other. It's a combination of the both. So if you if you're big all the way through, if you have a quiet moment, the quiet moment is louder, so to speak, than right. the rest of the film. And 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 if you're quiet all the way through uh, and you have a loud moment, that that yeah. is you know. So it's. It's not one or the other. It's, it's, I think it's a dynamic. Uh, it's a relationship between those elements. Yeah. I think you noted in one of your essays that I, I looked over um, that the reviews on like possession when they first came out were, were very bad and very dismissive of the acting, you know? Um, uh, and it just seems to me like they didn't understand it. You know, they're looking like you get kind of used to this, uh, smaller acting you see in film, a smaller kind of naturalistic acting, and then you see this like expressive, ecstatic performance, and you're like, oh yeah, that sucks. That's stupid. That's hammy. Uh, do you agree? Um, well, um, I, I think it goes back to this. I there's one thing: how we are and how we think of each other uh, ourselves, and the way that I think that uh, we like to think of ourselves as, as rational people. Yeah. whose decisions are are motivated by reason uh, as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, conscious decisions, things we're, we're in control of. We don't yeah. like the idea that we're, we're slaves to our unconsciousness right. and our emotions and right. we're out of control. Yeah. And we're saying and doing things which uh, we're not, you know, which are beyond us. And I think that... Um, it's one thing to experience that in life. It's another thing to be confronted by it. When we're confronted by it, you know, it's like seeing a photograph or listening to a podcast of yourself and you're thinking, I don't sound like that. I don't look like that. <laughs> yeah. 
So, yeah. so if you kind of look at there's some sort of like an emotional register for the human race. Yeah. And when you think, no, people aren't like that. People are not like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that the, the general thing which was, you know, people are like that. Uh, yeah. But I think that as time has gone on, I think that the, um, uh, I think certainly in the, certainly now, given the, the technological changes which have taken place, certainly in the last 10, 20 years, I think that it's much more commonplace to um, to express one's feelings and emotions, particularly through the internet. Uh, yeah. You know, Twitter. If okay, it's no longer 140 characters. I, I don't. I don't use Twitter. I don't understand or don't care. But mm-hmm. the, the idea that you have to express a complicated, noised opinion in a few characters it means it can either be the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. So you yeah. have this polarization of emotions yeah. and, and, and then the more emotive, the more exaggerated, uh, you know, Fox news is a great example, yeah. the more traction it's going to get. So we're living in this highly emotional heightened state in the way that like everything now is like, I think one of the interesting things, uh, yeah, like Kila Janice did this great book, the house of psychotic women. Uh, I don't know if you know this book, but she 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 wrote about uh, the character, the, the the crazy woman, and and she she combined this with uh, a, a level of autobiography, and I, I think it was a nice balance between film history uh, and memoir. Yeah, and and I think that on the one hand that book was great, but on the other hand it's kind of spawned a situation whereby a lot of the commentary on possession is actually this film reminds me of my marriage breakup or when I got rid of my boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so, so in other words, basically the film is kind of like co-opted as some sort of warped mask for you, you know, exercising whatever baggage you've got or whatever's in your system. And, and, and I think that that's, um, if, if one can step back, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it's good film criticism, uh, but I do think it's an interesting thing that's happened whereby people have a forum to talk about, not just relationships, but their relationship. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then so suddenly possession, I think most of the stuff about possession, it's um, not so much interest in Zhuwevsky as a filmmaker or as a film, but as a, as a possibility of exploring either your own feelings or the possibilities it opens up in cinema. So we're seeing an awful lot of films. I mean, it's the, it's the, um, The uber elevated horror, and I hate that term as most people do. But you know, the 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 film which is a metaphor for something else and whatever, blah blah blah, or, or a film which is serious. You know, relationships are serious. You know, cannibals are not serious. You know, yeah. cannibals are serious if if you're living with a cannibal. You know, yeah. I guess I've never lived with a cannibal, but I'm assuming that 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 is a a, a, a serious issue, a life or death issue. Yeah. You. I'll bet. Living with a cannibal. So, so it's, you, you get the point. Yeah. I do. And I think uh, uh, that's going to be the note we stop on, I think, because I think it would be really funny to stop there. But this, uh, Daniel, this has been such an amazing conversation. And thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, this is terrific. It's a I really want. Uh, thank you for, for inviting me on the podcast. And, oh, uh, yeah. No, thank you for coming. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to reach out to you again uh, to talk. Uh, at length on possession if you if if you sincerely are up for it of course it's always a pleasure so 
thank you very much and uh yeah have a great day thanks you too thanks daniel bye bye bye